This episode is a read-through of The Anchor of the Soul by Byung-Un Yu. In this book, the author explains the matter of coming to realize the gift of God, which has been given to every single one of us free of charge. He does so by sharing various excerpts from the Bible, hymns, and examples we can relate to in our everyday lives. The Anchor of the Soul by Byung-Un Yu Narrated by Alex Taylor Published by The Word Forum Unless one is born again. People generally think if they are good during their lives, they will go to a good place when they die. Those who believe in Jesus also think if they continue in their faith, they will go to heaven. When they die, a pastor will conduct a funeral service and pray for them, and a cross will be erected at the head of their graves. It is possible, however, that the spirit of such a person will not be able to go to heaven. Even if a person is enrolled as a member of a church, even if he serves faithfully in his church and donates a lot of money to it, it is still possible that his spirit will go to hell after he dies. Even if he has evangelized with great enthusiasm in order to guide the spirits of others to heaven, he will not be able to go himself if he is not born again. An individual may have worked diligently as an elder, a deacon, or even a pastor, but those duties will not send his spirit to heaven. Of course, it goes without saying that the spirits of people who do not believe in Jesus will not be able to go to heaven. But it is really appalling to think that the spirits of all the people who have been misinformed in their belief will also end up in hell. This point is made very clear through the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. One evening Nicodemus came to look for Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. To this Jesus answered, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not knowing what it meant to be born again, Nicodemus asked, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See John chapter 3 verses 2 through 5. Even today, about 2,000 years after Jesus spoke these words, there are many people who ignore the fact that they need to be born again in order to get to heaven, and they try to get there on the basis of their own efforts instead. There are some diligent people who continually make an effort to get to heaven, even though one of the hymns they sing so joyfully contains the line, Working Will Not Save Me, Weeping Will Not Save Me by Robert Lowry, 1826-1899. I once heard the following story about D.L. Moody. One day, as Moody was traveling by train, he happened to be riding in the same car as a young hooligan. When the young man became aware that he was traveling with this famous revivalist preacher, he approached him and asked, Mr. Moody, how many months would it take for a gangster like myself to go to heaven? Moody replied, Five minutes would do. The man was astonished to hear that within just five minutes he could have the faith needed to go to heaven. This incident developed into an opportunity for him to hear the gospel, and later he was born again. The Thoughts of Man and the Thoughts of God there are many Christians who think that strict observance of the law and the commandments God has given us is the direct route to heaven, 
so they make a great effort to follow this path. No matter how hard a person may try, however, he will not be able to keep these commandments to absolute perfection. Suppose someone is using an iron chain to climb a cliff. If this chain were to break, the man would fall to the bottom of the cliff. But how many of the links of the chain would have to break for the man to fall? It would be enough if just one of them broke. In the same way, if you were to observe the whole law and fail on just one detail, it would all be in vain. In the Bible it says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. James chapter 2 verse 10 There is a limit to the number of good works a person can do. It is not possible to keep the whole of the law. So when an individual stands before the words of the law, he comes to realize his incompetence and helplessness. There is a Bible verse that says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Matthew chapter 9 verse 12 Fundamentally, every human being is spiritually ill and in need of a spiritual physician. When it comes to the basic spiritual illness from which we are all suffering, that is, the need to get rid of our sins, we cannot apply our own good deeds. We need to acknowledge that there is no way that we can rid ourselves of our sins through our own efforts, and we should give up trying to do this. We also need to have the prayer in our hearts that says, I am a sinner. Please forgive me. Even so, many people strive to cover up their sins with their own good deeds. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9 through 9. As these verses tell us, salvation comes through faith and not as a result of actions. It is not our own righteousness or our own good works that qualify us to be able to go to heaven. We go there by faith in the power of the cross of Jesus. Before I came to know this truth, I thought any good deeds I performed would help in at least some small way to qualify me to go to heaven. I tried my best to do good deeds, but later I discovered that my thoughts and God's thoughts were completely different. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 through 9 God's thoughts are on a different level from our human thoughts. That is why we are asked to return to God. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and He will have mercy on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Isaiah chapter 55 verses 6 through 7 Inside a person's heart there is evil and there is sin. Since the cause of sin lies inside of man, no matter how much good we do on the outside, we cannot rid ourselves of our sin. I once heard an amusing story about a high school student who had just inhaled from a cigarette when a teacher caught him. The teacher confronted him, but the student pretended he had not been smoking. When he opened his mouth to deny it, however, smoke came out. The smoke that had already entered his lungs had no other way of escaping. In the same way, no matter how hard you may try not to commit sins, since sin is already inside you, 
it cannot help but come out. Let me ask you a question. Are we sinners because we have sinned, or do we sin because we are sinners? Man sins for the simple reason that he is a sinner. It is not that he becomes a sinner as a result of sinning. This is why God said, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 7 Since God's thoughts and man's thoughts are so different, God appeals to us not to misunderstand this point. Man's Righteousness and God's Righteousness If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. Job chapter 35 verses 7 through 8 People work hard to build up their store of righteousness, but such righteousness has nothing to do with God. At the time of Jesus, the large majority of the Jews even thought the best way for them to serve God was by killing Jesus. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 3. They had a zeal for God, but in their fervor they did not consider the righteousness of God. They advocated their own righteousness and did not submit to God's righteousness. In doing this, they ended up carrying out actions that had nothing to do with God's righteousness. Just because a person has been attending church for a long time or performs duties in his church, it does not mean that God is satisfied with him. If these were the things that satisfy God, he would have demanded them. But even if you search through the entire Bible, you will not find a single passage in which God makes such demands. The Bible says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 These words best describe man's true situation before God. Of course, the righteousness of man seems great in man's eyes, but in God's eyes, man's righteousness is just like filthy rags. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 In order to become a person who is worthy before God, you must put on the wedding garment that God has prepared for you. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 22 verses 11 through 13 As you can see from this passage, Anyone who does not put on the wedding garment God provides cannot participate in this wedding feast in heaven. What is this wedding garment? Some people drape themselves in wedding garments they have made for themselves and parade around in them proudly. For some, this wedding garment may be confidence in the fact that they attended Sunday school from a very young age. 
For others, it may be pride in the fact that they began attending church when they were still inside their mother's womb. To such people, however, God will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that practice lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. The true wedding garment that God has prepared is God's righteousness. The only way anyone can go to heaven is by putting on God's righteousness. Let's take a look at the example of the two criminals who were crucified beside Jesus. One of the two reviled Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other criminal scolded the first one, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he implored Jesus, saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To this Jesus replied, Today you will be with me in paradise. See Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. This man was forgiven for his sins as he hung dying on the cross. He had never been to church for a prayer meeting, and he had never attended a revival meeting. He was saved the moment his heart turned to Jesus. As he stood at death's door, he put on the wedding garment that God had provided. Have you put on this wedding garment? Do you believe, or are you just trying to believe? There is a difference between believing in Jesus and just saying you believe. The efforts of those people who try to prove their faith through their good deeds alone are a long way from the faith of which the Bible speaks. Let's take a look at our own faith and the intrinsic nature of the faith the Bible teaches. I would like to ask the many people who say they believe in God whether they actually believe or are making an effort to believe. Many people think it is difficult to believe because they associate struggling to make an effort with the meaning of the term believe. They think believing involves being restricted and carrying a heavy burden. Believing is a matter of completely entrusting yourself to something. This is the attitude that arises in a person when he reaches a state in which he realizes his actions and efforts are to no avail. When you are being driven in a car, provided the vehicle is in good working order and the driver is not drunk, you can ride along without any fear. You never know when or where an accident might occur but you entrust yourself to the driver and the car. When I travel by plane, the thought sometimes crosses my mind that I am completely in the hands of the plane and its pilot. This kind of faith is a matter of trusting implicitly. There is nothing you yourself can do inside the plane to make it fly any more smoothly or safely. No efforts on your part can make any difference. If you just sit quietly and entrust yourself entirely, you will automatically get to your destination. This is also the case when it comes to our faith in God. Are you uneasy and anxious? Or do you live your life having entrusted everything to God? The Bible does not ask us to try hard or make a great effort. Believing always has meant, and always will mean, trusting without any doubts. The term believing has the same meaning, whether it is used by someone who believes in Jesus or by someone who does not. As a baby grows, his mother feeds and clothes him, and he entrusts himself to her without any worries at all. He is not capable of doing anything for himself, but his parents can do everything for him. 
When it comes to believing in God, if we do not have the kind of faith that enables us to entrust everything to Him as a small child, it is difficult for us to know what faith is. Christians Hated by the World If you take a look at the history of the Church, you will find that the truth has always been persecuted by falsehood. In other words, the people who preach the true gospel have always been persecuted, mocked, and despised by those who have nothing but the outer shell of the gospel. Of course, when Jesus came to this world, he was not praised either. He was mocked and despised, and in the end, he was killed. As a result, all of mankind falls under one of two categories, those who suffer with Christ and those who oppose Christ. It says this in the Bible, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans chapter 8 verses 17 through 18. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. At one time, political powers took control of Christianity, oppressing the real truth of which the Bible speaks. Even at the beginning of the era of modern history, people holding political power and advocating orthodoxy killed those who proclaimed what appeared to be new and radical ideas. To give you an example, after the Anglican Church had been established as the Church of England, church officials had the evangelist John Bunyan imprisoned. Whenever he tried to preach, he would be put in prison. This did not stop him, however, even when his wife lay sick and there was no one else to take care of household matters. He spent many years in prison. Later, one Christian historian would say that Bunyan was the most stubborn man in England. It was while Bunyan was in prison that he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress, an account of the steps an individual takes as he walks towards God. In this book, Bunyan depicted the anguish in the heart and the battles with enemies that a believer encounters as he progresses towards the kingdom of God. Even before the Reformation instigated by Martin Luther, many people sacrificed their lives for their faith. As we examine the history of Christianity, we find that wherever the gospel has been preached, it has been in the midst of circumstances far from peaceful. Countless people have been sacrificed for the sake of proclaiming this truth. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew chapter 5 verses 11 through 12. How was Jesus treated by the religious leaders of his time? They hated him, and in the end, he suffered the agony of crucifixion at their hands. The truth of Christianity in the days of the early church was not an object of praise in this world. It was an object of hatred. The Apostle Paul was referred to as a plague and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, Acts chapter 24, verse 5. And the apostles were accused of having turned the world upside down, Acts chapter 17, verse 6. In 1740, the gospel movement began to develop in England, centered on Oxford University. 
The pivotal figure at the time was John Wesley. Even before this, the work of the gospel had continued to flourish due to the work of people who had come to a definite realization of the truth. People such as John Bunyan, John Knox, and John Calvin. In Wesley's day, too, people who came to a definite realization of the gospel were, in most cases, treated as heretics and persecuted. Even in the midst of persecution wherever they went, they were determined in their work of proclaiming the gospel. When the gospel was first preached through these people, the precise gospel of the truth flourished, but as time passed, this gradually changed until there was nothing left but formalities and an outer shell. It was just as the Bible says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. What is the true Christianity of which the Bible speaks? The Bible offers examples using the visible world, but more importantly, it reveals something spiritual. It reveals freedom and peace of mind, and the truth that gives life to the Spirit. People who do not understand this point misunderstand the truth that is accomplished in the Spirit and distort it into mere outward appearances, adopting maxims that parallel those of the world. The Peace That Comes From God When I was young, if I heard the Korean song that says, When spring comes, the azaleas bloom on the side of the hills, my heart would be carried away to the hillside by the vitality of spring. When people sang the words, under the shade of the magnolia tree, even though I could not see one, my heart would be there under the magnolia trees. Spring has a way of completely drawing us in, and it is the same for summer, autumn, and winter. Once a person has come to a definite realization of the gospel, however, he enters into another kind of season. He lives with his heart in eternity. It is a season that is not spring, summer, autumn, or winter. There is a peace in his heart, whether it rains, snows, or is stormy. This peace transcends all physical circumstances. If we compare God's word with the principles of nature, we can understand more clearly. Imagine a cloudy day. Even though the clouds block the sun so it cannot be seen, it is still there above the clouds. Just because we cannot see the sun, it does not mean it is not there. This is all the more obvious when we go up in a plane. No matter how hard it may be raining, it is only dark below the clouds. The sun is still up there in the sky. In a similar way, Although worldly matters may sometimes come upon us briefly like a black cloud, that cloud will soon disappear, and we find the peace that God gives us is still there, the same as always. This is a promise that God has made to Christians. The world has no idea about this precious truth. For a long time, mankind has struggled and made a great effort to find this truth, such as so-called religion. Religion demands a great deal of effort and hard work from people. Mankind has continued to develop religions, but they are still as great a burden as ever. We need to reconsider the will of God who gave the Bible to mankind. Man's Religious Nature One of the questions I often ask people is, what is the difference between man and animals? I've heard many answers to this question, but none that were satisfactory. Some people say that animals do not have the ability to think, but they do actually have this ability. 
There are also some people who say the difference is that animals do not wear clothes. When we consider this matter from various angles, we find the greatest difference between man and animals lies in the existence or non-existence of religious tendencies. Even the monkey, perhaps the animal that is most similar to man, does not worship any kind of god or idol. Man alone has a religious nature. This is because man is a being that proceeds from the finite to the infinite. This religious nature has led man to grope around searching for God in his own way. In the past, some people would climb up to a rock high up at the top of a mountain, thinking things would go well in their lives if they offered sacrifices there. Some people would set out a food offering on a table in front of an old tree. Others would light a candle beside a well and pray for blessings there. Followers of slightly more sophisticated religions would construct a tall building or a high tower and make an idol of that. Some people bow down and pray to gods that have no names, but none of these gods have any answers. Did God die long ago? Even amongst the people who have believed during the past 2,000 years of Christianity, there have been some who have claimed that God is dead. When one cosmonaut came back from a trip into space, he said he had not found God up there and that man had now conquered religion and God. Is it so amazing that man should have gone to the moon and back? All we did was pay a brief visit to the moon, the heavenly body closer to the earth than any other in the entire universe. We did not colonize the whole universe. Man has many criticisms of God, but the concept of God to be found in the Bible is different from man's concept of God. Most man-made gods or idols made from stone, iron, or wood cannot utter a word. The God of which the Bible speaks, however, is not like that. The Bible is the Word of God. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 God began everything with His Word. He gave His words to mankind, and men received these words and wrote them down. The Bible says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21 As you read through the Old Testament, you will find many phrases such as, Thus has the Lord said to me, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Then the Lord said to me, The prophets were making the point very clear that these were not their own words, but the words of God. This is how the Bible was completed. It is through the Bible that man and God can continue to converse with one another. Other doctrines have now penetrated deep into Christianity, degrading the value of the Bible. Even so, it is because God is alive and the words of the Bible have remained alive throughout history that we find God and believe in Him. The Method of Sacrifice That God Demands If God is to be worshipped, there needs to be some specific way of going about it. In Old Testament times, people took this method of worship very seriously. To put it into practice, it was necessary to have people who knew the sacrificial laws. These people were the priests. 
when Abraham entered the land of Canaan, before Israel was established as a nation, there was a high priest by the name of Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem translated means peace. When Abraham's nephew Lot had been captured by Gentile kings, and Abraham went and brought Lot back with all his possessions, Melchizedek went out to meet Abraham and blessed him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 19. From time to time, there arose a priest like the king of Salem, whose ancestral background did not correspond to the law of the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that the king of Salem in particular was the priest of God Most High. These days, there are many people who call themselves priests. There are even some preachers who proudly refer to themselves as priests. This kind of self-importance may boost their confidence, but there is a great difference between them and the priests who appear in the Bible. Let's think about the Old and New Testaments as a whole. In Old Testament times, there were the priests and the high priests. It was the high priest's responsibility to offer a sacrifice once a year for all the people. There was a flaw, however, to this system of priests and high priests. This is because everyone becomes old and dies, so when one high priest died, the next high priest had to take over. Since the duties of the high priest were entrusted to mortal men, many high priests were needed to continue the work in Old Testament times. Concerning this flaw, in the letter to the Hebrews it says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, in other words, had had no flaws, then no place would have been sought for a second. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 7 When it says a second, here it means the second covenant. With the establishing of the New Testament, which is the new covenant, the first covenant, that is to say the method of sacrifice of Old Testament times, loses its power and fades away. The methods of offering sacrifices that were used continually in Old Testament times were merely a shadow intended to herald the new offering of the New Testament. In that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13. This means that the things that pertain to the law vanish. Who do the high priests of Old Testament times symbolize? They symbolize Jesus Christ of New Testament times. Also, the priests of Old Testament times correspond to the people of New Testament times who believe in Jesus Christ. In Old Testament times, the priests represented the people, praying to God for the sins of the people. But now, believers have the authority of the priests. We have been given this authority free of charge. Coming to Him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5 through 5. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 We have but one high priest and that is Jesus Christ. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. 
Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 and chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. The person described in this passage is Jesus. The Old Testament is a shadow of the New Testament. If we want to know precisely what the New Testament is saying, we must first examine the Old Testament. The high priests of Old Testament times offered sacrifices in accordance with the law. But what was the sacrifice that Jesus offered as high priest? He offered his own body as a sacrifice, once for all. This is God's method of sacrifice that the Bible is talking about. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 10 and 12 Jesus, the Eternal High Priest There were many priests, and each year they had to offer sacrifices. This method of offering sacrifices was effective for only a certain period of time, and therefore it had its limits. But now the one who is perfect and without spot or blemish has offered his own body once for all as the eternal sacrifice. He has dealt with our weaknesses eternally. He has become the eternal high priest. This is God's plan. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 19 through 20. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 3. Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. When we examine his lineage, we find he was not of the tribe of Levi, but the tribe of Judah. Not only had there never been a high priest from the tribe of Judah, but according to the law of Moses, a man of that tribe could not become a high priest. Nevertheless, Jesus, whom God caused to be born of the tribe of Judah, is our high priest. Melchizedek appeared without genealogy and became a priest to demonstrate that Jesus was qualified to be seated as the eternal high priest even though he was not born of the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek was without genealogy or descent, but Abraham gave him one-tenth of all he had received and was blessed by him. All of the Israelites who would later be born as his descendants were within the body of Abraham at that time. Of course, this includes the tribes of Levi and Judah. So when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, weren't all the Israelites also blessed with him? Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. As we can see from this verse, Jesus was different. He was the Son of God according to the promise. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 11 through 19 By the law is the knowledge of sin. The law cannot make anything perfect. Even a person who makes the bold claim that he has never committed a single sin will find he will not be able to say this once he has read the Ten Commandments carefully, one by one. In that case, why did God give the law to man? The purpose of the law is not to get rid of the nature of sin within us, but to bring us to realize our sin. When a doctor puts a stethoscope to the chest of his patient, he hears all kinds of sounds coming from within. The doctor uses the stethoscope not to cure the patient's illness, but to listen to these sounds and make his diagnosis from what he hears. Just as the stethoscope is used to diagnose a patient's illness, the law was given so that we might come to know our sin. When a doctor puts his stethoscope to the chest of his patient and listens, he hears the sound of the patient's heart beating, but the patient himself cannot hear it. In a similar way, when someone is told he has sinned, his conscience might trouble him a little, but when he sees himself in the light of God's law, he cannot help but realize to his dismay that he is a sinner destined to die. Through the law, we can realize our sin. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. It says here that no flesh will be justified by the deeds of the law. The spirit cannot be made alive by means of the tool that is used for diagnosing the sin, can it? The Bible says the law was given in order to condemn sin. I once went into a store to buy some books. I chose a few volumes and settled on a price with the owner. When I put my hand in my pocket to get the money to pay, however, I was startled to find I did not have a single penny on me. I felt very embarrassed since we had already settled on a price. I had agreed to the price without knowing if I had any money in my pocket. This experience was a result of my own negligence. Once the price had been fixed, it was my responsibility to pay. It is the same when it comes to the Bible. Before the law was given, man was full of confidence and quite outspoken. 
he was always free to act as he pleased. From the moment the law began to point out his sins, however, he came to no sin, and as a result, his liberty came to an end. The High Priest Who Takes Away Your Sin And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, also there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 20 and 23 through 25. What sort of person is the high priest referred to here? He is the one who offered up his own body as an eternal sin offering. Jesus was crucified and died 2,000 years ago in order to atone for our sins. When he was crucified, he did not just take the sins of everyone else upon himself and leave your sins as they are. He took upon himself all the sins of all the people in the world, including you. In that case, has he forgiven all your sins eternally? Or has he only forgiven about half your sins? There are often people who give themselves a really hard time as they believe in Jesus, acting as though Jesus has said, I've forgiven about half your sins, so you take care of the other half and follow me. They have a harder time than people who do not believe at all. The Bible, however, says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. The reason he is able to save them to the uttermost is that Jesus is praying for us as our eternal high priest at the right hand of God. The Bible also describes Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29. If it says the world, it must of course include my sins and the sins of each one of you individually. There is a hymn that includes the lines, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What Can Wash Away My Sin by Robert Lowry, 1826-1899 It is not that I wash away my sin through my own efforts. As it says in this hymn, it is the blood of Jesus that washes away my sin. So the Bible says it is fitting that we should have such a high priest. See Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. What were the last words that Jesus said as he hung on the cross? They were, It is finished. The people who hammered the nails through Jesus' hands and feet did not then put down their hammers, wipe their hands, and say, Now that's finished. It was Jesus, nailed to the cross, who said, It is finished. All the sins of all mankind, who had become sinners when Adam sinned, were borne upon the body of Jesus, who had no sin or wickedness in him. The cross reveals that all the sins of mankind have been removed. When Melchizedek blessed Abraham, weren't all Abraham's descendants inside Abraham? In the same way, my sins and the sins of every one of you were included in the burden of all the sin of mankind that Jesus took upon himself on the cross. It is a big problem if you think that only the sins of certain special people were included in the burden of sin that Jesus took upon himself. Whether you believe it or not, your sins, my sins, and the sins of all the people in this world were included. It is because of non-belief that people will later be judged in front of God. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, 
But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17. When Jesus died on the cross, God cast the sins of everyone behind his back. God's Oath What kind of person was Jesus? He was not a sinner who had inherited the blood of Adam. He came to this world as the Son of God, having no sin at all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John chapter 3, verse 16. If Jesus had said, It is finished, when he had not in fact taken the sin of the whole world upon himself, it would have made him the greatest impostor the world has ever known. Yet, since he did take the sin of all the world upon himself as he was nailed to the cross, we cannot help but be grateful. There is nothing that we ourselves can do, and it is not necessary for us to do anything. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 9. Since we have been forgiven freely through God's grace, we cannot boast about anything that we ourselves have done. But try approaching someone who claims to have believed for years and sings the line of the hymn that says, All so freely given. Sing them over again to me by Philip Paul Bliss, 1838-1876. And ask, are you really going to heaven free of charge? You will probably find there are people who say, no, of course not. I'm not there yet. I still have to work hard at it. But Jesus has accomplished everything for us. All you have to do is let your heart trust in the fact that he has done it all. There is a hymn that includes the line, I'm believing and receiving while I to the fountain go. I'm believing and receiving by William J. Kirkpatrick, 1838 to 1921. But there is no hymn that says, From now on I'll make up my mind to mend my ways while I to the fountain go. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 28. It is God who makes the oath. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Matthew chapter 5 verses 34 through 35. Only God is qualified to make an oath. God has made an eternal oath for us. Our vows to believe are useless. You simply need to stand on the rock that is Jesus and believe what he has accomplished. It is as it says in the hymn, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less by Edward Moat, 1797-1874. Jesus has completed the task of obtaining eternal redemption. Before you think about us or the world here, you need first to think about yourself. Suppose there is a man who has been traveling a long way and is completely exhausted from thirst. In that situation, would he say, please give us some water? Or would he say, please give me some water? Thirst is experienced by the individual. It does not involve other people around him. 
It is the same for us when we stand before God. It is not the group, but the individual who must receive the eternal truth that God has accomplished. Faith is given free of charge. When we read the Bible, we can see that the words God has spoken to us are full of warmth and affection. People who are not aware of this may bow down and pray to some statue or idol, but these objects will not give them any answers. The Bible, however, is expressing the fact that God sent Jesus, His only begotten Son, and this Son provided redemption for the sins of all of mankind. Even though God lays this tremendous grace before us, there are still people who will perish because they do not believe. In order to avoid the judgment that definitely will come in the future, you must make peace with God. The method is very simple. All you have to do is believe the verse from the Bible that says, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 17. Nevertheless, there are people who cannot believe this because these words are so simple. There is a story about a taxi driver who was driving down a road when he noticed a little old lady struggling along balancing a heavy bundle on her head. He pulled up beside her and said, That bundle looks very heavy. I've earned a lot of money today, so hop in and let me give you a ride for free. Happy to be doing this good deed, he drove on for a while feeling on top of the world, but then he heard a groan coming from behind him. When he turned around to take a look, he found the little old lady still had the bundle on her head and was groaning from the exertion. Thinking this was really strange, the driver asked, Why don't you put your bundle down on the seat beside you? The old lady replied, I'm grateful enough to you for giving me a ride. I cannot expect you to take the burden of my bundle as well. We may laugh at the behavior of the old lady in this story, but there are a tremendous number of people who act in the same way in front of God. Even though you tell them Jesus has taken upon himself the sins of each individual one of us, many people say, how can I entrust all my sins to Jesus? There are so many sins. I need to do some good deeds to atone at least for a few of them. I'm such a terrible, shameless sinner. There are many people who believe in Jesus in an ethical way like this, but that is not true faith. There are people who have attended church for more than 10 years, and yet they still do not have peace in their hearts, and they are still suffering under the burden of their sins. This is because they have not entrusted their spirits to God's covenant. It is finished. The Bible tells us that the first covenant had regulations of divine service. That first covenant is the Old Testament. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest took two goats from the people and performed a ceremony to indicate that the sins of the people had been transferred to the animals. When the ceremony was over, one of the animals would be taken out into the wilderness and left there to be devoured by wolves or other beasts. The other animal was slaughtered, and its blood was taken into the most holy place where the high priest sprinkled it with his finger before the mercy seat. This was the way in which the people's sins were washed away. When this ceremony was performed, the Israelites themselves could not enter the most holy place. It was simply that when they heard the sound of the bells that hung on the garment of the high priest, they knew the sacrifice had now been offered for their sins and God had forgiven them and their minds were set at ease. Of course, these two goats that were offered as sacrifices symbolized Jesus, 
who took the sins of mankind upon himself. See Leviticus chapter 16. Also, in the most holy place, there were the lampstand, the table, and the showbread. The candle on the lampstand was to remain lit at all times. This light symbolized Jesus, as we can see from the verses that say, I am the light of the world, John chapter 8, verse 12, and that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world, John chapter 1, verse 9. The showbread was also a shadow of Jesus' body, as Jesus said, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6, verse 35. Yet all of these were shadows of the new covenant, and they faded away when Jesus came and was crucified. They had been mere shadows of the perfect promise that was fulfilled when Jesus said as he died, It is finished. Aren't blueprints needed when you are constructing a building? Once the building is completed, however, there is no longer any need for the blueprints. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. The temple, the sacrifices, and the methods of worship that appear in the Old Testament are all shadows of matters fulfilled in the New Testament. When the actual object appears, there is no longer any need for the shadow. When Jesus died on the cross, what did the high priest witness as he went to offer a sacrifice in the temple? He saw the veil that hung between the holy place and the most holy place torn from top to bottom. The veil had been there as a shadow until Jesus, the Son of God, said, It is finished. At that moment, it was torn from top to bottom. Since the entity itself had appeared, there was no longer a need for the shadow. This veil represents Jesus' body. There was a high wall blocking the way between man and God. All these features of the temple were related to the law, but Jesus has put an end to all of them through his flesh. Everything was accomplished through Jesus' death by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20. Jesus' body was torn in order to open this new and living way. It is only through Jesus that we can find the way to eternal life. The way to salvation can only be found through Jesus, as he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6. Since the veil was an integral part of the temple, without the veil, the temple declined. In Old Testament times, countless animals without spot or blemish were slaughtered in the temple for the forgiveness of the sins of men. All of these sacrifices were shadows of Jesus' crucifixion, the true sacrifice. Just as all the sins of the people were transferred to the goat and it was killed, Jesus paid the price for the sins of all mankind through his death on the cross. John the Baptist also bore witness of Jesus in this respect when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29. All of these shadows came to an end, and the old covenant was completely fulfilled. If people received forgiveness for their sins through the blood of goats and calves, won't the eternal blood of Jesus Christ be able to provide forgiveness for the sins of each one of us and cleanse our consciences? You simply need to believe this with certainty in your heart. It is not enough just to ask or beg for forgiveness. Even making a firm resolution or just repenting will not be of any use. 
It is a matter of believing the truth that has already been accomplished. The Gift of God A gift cannot be judged by its price. It would not be very polite of me if someone gave me a present and I asked how much it cost. When someone gives a present, how can you judge his heart in terms of money? How can we put a price on the gift that God has given us, the tremendous gift of God's eternal forgiveness for our sins? I once watched as an acquaintance gave someone a gift and said, Compared to what Jesus has done for us, this gift does not amount to one one-thousandth or even one ten-thousandth as much. The gift that God has given us today is not the sacrifice of Old Testament times when the blood of a goat or a calf was shed. It is the covenant of the blood that Jesus shed to bring us eternal forgiveness. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12 verse 13 God said, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God will consider a person's character, disposition, appearance, knowledge, or noble-mindedness before passing over him. I hear thy welcome voice that calls me, Lord, to thee, for cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary, his blood the witness gives within my heart for me. I hear thy welcome voice by Lewis Hartso, 1828-1919. This is something for which to be tremendously grateful. We were sinners who had inherited the blood of Adam, but now, through the blood of Jesus, we have become children of God. The blood of Jesus soaks our consciences. The blood of Adam still flows in our bodies, but the covenant established through the blood of Jesus flows in our consciences. Jesus' own priceless body was torn, and thus he has bought us with his blood. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 14. The precious blood of Jesus has cleansed us. I sometimes meet people who have written out their last will and testament. Such a will has no effect while that person is still alive. If a rich man contacts his attorney and makes a will, leaving some of his wealth to his country, some of it to his children, and some of it to his local community, even if he makes a record of his will on videotape, that will is of no effect as long as the man is still alive. A will only comes into effect when the person who wrote it dies. In the same way, all of God's plan and his promise to forgive our sins had already been completed. But it was only when Jesus died that it all came into effect. Those who believe this promise that has been given to us come to live under the blessing of eternal forgiveness. Eternal Forgiveness those who have received Jesus, in other words, those who believe in His name, have received eternal forgiveness and have become children of God. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God.
John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 3, verse 16. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. John chapter 5, verse 24. Eternal life is believing that Jesus has already accomplished everything. We should put all our doubts in God's hands. When Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago, all of the sins of mankind were wiped out on the cross. Since that time, God has no longer addressed man directly as he did the Israelites in Old Testament times. He has looked at man through Jesus' blood. When God looks at us through the blood of Christ, all our sins are forgiven. This is the covenant established with blood, and this blood provides forgiveness for our sins. I can sing now the song of the blood-ransomed throng. In my soul there is peace, rest, and calm. I am free from all doubt, and I join in the shout, I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I can sing now the song, translated by John T. Underwood, 1988. For as long as we are living in this world as children of God, we admit our sins before God and have the authority to confess our faith to the world. Should it happen that we are criticized for our faith, we might be comforted by keeping in mind that people criticize us because they do not know. And if they came to know this truth, they would probably say the same as we do. When a person claims to be working hard in God's service, he may actually be defiling the name of God. When Jesus, the Son of God, shed his blood that one time, he provided eternal forgiveness for the sins of all mankind. This is the blood that he shed for us eternally. No more blood can be shed, and no more blood needs to be shed. When this truth of eternal redemption through the cross is denied and a different gospel is preached, the very essence of Christianity is changed. If you are not careful, you could end up believing in a God whose love is limited and miserly rather than the God of eternal love. That is why a person may sing the hymn that says, It, God's love, shall forevermore endure the saints and the angels' song. The love of God is greater far by F.M. Lehman and yet be a long way from knowing what these words really mean. There are even preachers who sing the lines, O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and the angels' song, and then make statements that contradict this. They might say it is not enough just to believe. You also need to make a great effort and work hard. Why the Judgment? We who are alive today believe in Christ who came in the past. Jesus came to this earth and was crucified, bearing the sin of all mankind. Since the time you were born, you have lived your life committing sins, and who knows how many more sins you will commit in the future. If you were to die today in that state, you would end up in hell. Why is that? It is because if you have even just the smallest of sins, you cannot go to heaven. But God has taken your sin and put it upon Jesus. Jesus was righteous and had not the slightest fault. And when he was crucified, the sin of all mankind was moved on to him. Jesus eliminated all of the sin in this world at one stroke. 
When Adam sinned, how many days did it take him? As soon as he ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he immediately became a sinner. Man became a sinner the moment he ate the forbidden fruit, but he becomes righteous in God's eyes the moment he believes in Jesus. In the Bible it says, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 9. When Jesus suffered on the cross and said, It is finished, your sins and mine all vanished. Whether we believe in Jesus or not, He took all of our sins upon Himself 2,000 years ago, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Romans chapter 4 verse 25. Jesus took upon Himself all the sins of every one of us, was crucified and died, and then He rose from the dead three days later for our justification. When Jesus was crucified, there were three crosses standing on that hill. On the crosses to the left and right of Jesus, there hung two criminals. One of them, who had been crucified for a terrible crime, came to believe in Jesus right then as He hung there. He had never attended church, but he certainly believed at that one moment. It did not take him a long time to believe. Did he make a great effort to believe? No, he did not. He simply believed. Believing in Jesus is a matter of completely entrusting yourself to what he has already done. You may come to believe as you are thinking while walking along the street or while talking to someone. There are many things that are said in this world but it is God who has said that man's sins have been completely forgiven. These words do not apply only to certain special people. They apply to all of mankind. So why is it that people will be judged when they stand before the judgment seat of God? Is it because they have committed so many sins? No, it is not. There is only one reason for anyone to be judged, and that is for not believing the truth that God has already accomplished. If you prepare a free feast for someone who is dying of starvation, he should eat it and enjoy it. If he is suspicious and does not eat, he will die. If he starves right beside the table covered with food ready for him to eat, what is the reason for his death? It is, of course, that he did not eat. In a similar way, the reason people will end up in hell is that they did not believe the truth that Jesus has already accomplished. People in Old Testament times believed that Jesus would come in the future. We who live in New Testament times believe in the truth that Jesus has already accomplished when He came. The sins of those who believed the Messiah would come and the sins of those who now believe in what He did when He came are already forgiven. Who Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 For whom was He delivered up? It was for you. Christ becomes the Savior of anyone who believes in this truth. After Forgiveness So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 When you read this verse, do not think of your sins. Why will Jesus appear a second time to those who believe? It will be in connection with the rewards of all the believers. It will not have anything to do with their sins. Since sin was forgiven eternally 2,000 years ago, a believer is already without sin. 
Isn't there a hymn that includes the line, Glory, glory, thus I sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus? What Can Wash Away My Sin by Robert Lowry, 1826-1899 Even people who believe in Jesus may be enticed to commit sins, but they will not end up in hell. This is because a person who is forgiven has already been designated as a son of God. If your own son made a mistake, you might scold him harshly or punish him in some way, but you could not cut him off from the blood lineage of the family, could you? God has established a covenant with us through the blood of Christ. Once you have come to believe in Jesus, the sins you commit are the sins of children of God, not the sins of unbelievers. The judgment for sin and the condemnation to hell are already over for you. All that remains is the judgment for the receiving of rewards. When Jesus died 2,000 years ago, eternal forgiveness for sins was completely accomplished. Now all that remains for you is to be grateful to Jesus because He died for your sins. When I talk about the gospel in this way, there are some people who are critical and say, does that mean that once you believe in Jesus, you can sin as much as you please and it does not matter? There cannot possibly be any such doctrine. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that if you believe in Jesus and have received eternal forgiveness, you can just sin as you please. Once Jesus has forgiven your sins, you feel so grateful that you cannot go on sinning. It may be that you face temptations and make mistakes in the course of your life. It may be that you sin unknowingly and stumble in a certain situation, not being able to distinguish between what is a sin and what is not. Such are the sins of a son of God. When a son does something wrong, his parents will scold him and sometimes punish him, but that does not mean he is no longer their son. As you read through the Proverbs, you will come across the verse that says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 8. When an individual lies, whether he considers it a big lie or a small lie, he will feel uneasy. It is even possible that doubts may arise regarding the basics of his faith. If he has been telling a lot of lies, for example, his prayer might be, Lord, in view of the way I've been telling so many lies, I wonder now if perhaps I'm not one of your children after all. For this reason, if a person has definitely become a child of God, he must make an effort not to do anything he knows to be sinful, no matter how small a sin it might be. In the Bible, there is a verse that says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. We should obey God's words that tell us, Therefore, putting away lying, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. It is because believers may make mistakes in the course of their lives that God said these things. When we do something wrong and sin before God, that sin will cause us to be deeply troubled in our consciences. But God will not cast us aside because of it. God's love is truly eternal. We firmly believe that we have an advocate who is speaking before God on our behalf regarding all the sins that we have committed whether knowingly or in ignorance. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 
1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2 through 2. The End After listening to this podcast, it is important to truly look at how we have lived our lives, making sure we are humble before God, not trusting in our own thoughts, but trusting in God instead. We hope this episode pushes listeners to reflect on their faith in Jesus Christ with an earnest heart. If you have any questions or matters you wish to discuss, you can email us at info at the wordforum.org or call 201-541-9060. You can find the contact information in the description below. Thank you.